You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. If you're visiting with us today, welcome to Kingsway. If you're checking us out online, we're really glad that you're tuning in today. If you're visiting, and this is your first time, and I actually met a lady this morning, that's her story, so we're glad you're here, but you're picking up in the third week of a series that we're doing, and while you could listen to this message and not need the previous weeks, I think it'd be really good if I could at least recap three major points for you. So I'm just gonna recap quickly. We looked at the book of Job the last two weeks, and Job is a man who experienced tremendous, tremendous suffering. And what I said over the last two weeks, this is essentially, I said a lot more because I talk a lot, but I said these three things. Number one, your suffering is a byproduct of your enemy, Satan, who only wants to steal, kill, and destroy. That last part of that phrase comes actually from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus actually tells us, your enemy, he wants to steal, kill, and destroy. What Job reveals to us is that our enemy is doing everything he can to bring about pain and suffering in our lives. This is why, and I use this illustration in one of the messages, um, have you ever been like driving down the road, say you're married, I know some of you aren't, but let's say you're married, and you're driving down the road, and you get in a little spat with your spouse, and all of a sudden you have this thought, you know what, maybe I'd be better off without this person. That same person, 10 minutes prior, you were totally happy and content to spend the rest of your life with, but in that moment, they did that thing that just drives you crazy and touched on that one nerve, said that one thing, did that one thing that you just can't stand. So where does that come from? You have an enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But here's the thing, when the enemy is doing stuff in our lives and life hurts, when we suffer, God seems really confusing to us, does he not? I don't know anybody who at some point in their life, maybe there's somebody out there, you could tell me who you are later. Um, no, don't, because I'll just be mad at you. But most of us, when life is hard, at some point ask the question, why? Why, God, why is this happening? And what we kind of envision is this perfect world where there's this bubble that we live in, Right? And in this magic bubble, nothing bad ever happens to us. So if, if somebody pulls out a gun and shoots it at us, and we're innocent and good, because we are, nobody else is, but we are, that bullet would magically melt or you know, be like, an, you know, like a, a magical snap or something. I just made that up. Never heard of that in culture before. And it turned into like smoke and disappear. Uh, or something like that would happen. We envision this world. We want like all the bad people ought to let the bad things still happen to them, but all the good people should just be fine and, and, and good. And if God is good, why didn't he create that kind of world? And what we don't realize when we're asking this question is that we ourselves have actually played a part in bringing bad into this very world that we live in. Now, I get it. Some of you, like me, are awesome. Okay, good. I'm glad you got that was a joke. If we were to play a comparison game of who's the best person in the room, I don't think I'd be at the top. I, I, some of you are way better people than I am, but I hope that I would be in the upper echelon, like I could outflex some of you in this game that we'd be playing. But the Bible says, I'm not comparing myself to you, and I'm not comparing myself to the absolute worst of humanity. I'm comparing myself to Jesus. And he knew no sin. He was perfect in every way. But his perfection wasn't because of lack of temptation. While in this world, he was tempted in every way that we were. And that actually was God's answer to the problem. And I get it. If you're not a person of faith, this may not make sense to you yet. But God understood our confusion, and he chose to suffer so that he could become a perfect priest to us. That was God's solution. And you may be saying, well, that's not a very good solution because nothing has changed. 
But you gotta put the pieces together to understand the foundation that we're standing on to say the rest of what I have to say today. We are living in a battlefield and there are only two kingdoms in this battlefield, God and the enemy. God is eternally and infinitely good and loving and he is bringing that good and loving into the world. That's what he's been doing since the beginning. When our forefather and foremother, Adam and Eve, sinned and rebelled against God, they entered into a battle that they didn't see and didn't understand at the time. And it's been raging now for centuries, for millennia, since that day to bring us to where we are today, still in the middle of a very real battlefield. God's answer was, I will take on flesh, I'll dwell among them, I'll be tempted in all the ways they're tempted, but I'll never fail. So that when I am brutalized and my flesh is torn apart and my hands are nailed to the cross, they'll be able to look to me and trust me. But before that day came, roughly 2,000 years ago, there's a guy in the Old Testament. We aren't even sure how to say his name. It's like Habakkuk or Habakkuk or something else. I've actually heard four different pronunciations of his name because nobody knows. Not only does nobody know how to pronounce his name, we don't even know where he came from. If you've ever read what we call the Old Testament, the older parts of the Bible, if you've ever read them before, you are blown away quickly by just how many of these people in the book, they tell us who their daddy is and who his daddy is and who his daddy is and who his daddy is because the Hebrew people are very careful to connect everything together and partly we learn so that when Jesus shows up, you can actually connect the dots all the way back to these powerful people like David and Abraham and so on. And it's powerful for you, except if you get to a guy like Habakkuk, Habakkuk, we're gonna call him Habakkuk, you're gonna get to that guy and you have no idea where he came from and you have no idea what he's dealing with and you have no idea what he's talking about, but he's gonna jump right into his book. Now, before we jump into his book, and I wanna encourage you, if you know what that is in the Bible, turn there, I wanna ask you this question. Have you ever had someone make a decision that affected your life? that made you question God's goodness. As we looked at Job, what we discovered is there's different kinds of suffering in this life. Job being covered with boils was still a plan brought on by the enemy to trip up Job. But much of Job's suffering actually came at the hands of other people. If this has never happened to you, I pray it never does. But I gotta be honest, I don't know how you're gonna escape this world and have this never happen to you. At some point, a spouse is going to not keep their vow or a business partner is going to lie or a kid is going to deceive or a parent might abandon or neglect. Somebody might abuse you. A friend might stab you in the back or lie or create rumors about you. And if I could stand up here just another 10 minutes, I could probably find the thing that represents your story. But at some point, life is going to hurt in a way that feels unfair. And when it does, what do we do? That's the story of Habakkuk. Let's jump in. in. Habakkuk, chapter one, verse one. Here's the entire setup you get for the book. You ready? The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. There you go. That's it. That's the entire background for the book. We don't even know when Habakkuk was writing. Usually we could tell when, a, when one of the writers is writing because he'll name a king or he'll name an event or he'll name a thing. And we don't even know exactly when Habakkuk is writing, but some of the internal details, it's only a three chapter book of the book, will reveal to us about when Habakkuk is writing and what's going on in Israel at the time where Habakkuk is writing, which is critical to understand everything that he's about to throw out of you. So we go right from, here's the book written by Habakkuk, right into this. 
Chapter one, verse two. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you? Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. Here a strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now, if you didn't catch what he's saying here, he's simply saying, God, I don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening and you seem to be okay with it. How, God, can you just sit there and do nothing? Ever felt like that? Just a couple days ago, I was talking to somebody, and I can relate with this, but they said, I stopped watching the news because it's always bad news. And that's not true. Actually, I give credit to the news media. They are trying to find stories like the Dollar Club to celebrate because there are good things happening, but the reality is news is called news because it's intriguing and it's engaging, and a lot of that's just bad. Now that we all have like these ring doorbells, like I get these things all the time. Somebody broke into my car, somebody's breaking into my house. Look at this creepy person staring at my front door. And it makes you wonder like, is this world a safe place? Which is why we all have padlocks on our doors. Anybody who does believe evil is present in the world, do you have locks on your cars and an alarm on your car? Yes, why? Because this world is full of evil. And Habakkuk is seeing the evil around him and he's saying, God, where are you in the midst of this evil? You aren't making any sense to me. And I don't know about you, but I can relate with that. What I love about Habakkuk is once Habakkuk states the problem and he gets it out there, he's a prophet. He talks to God, God talks to him, he shares with the people what God has shared to him. Now sometimes God doesn't say anything or God doesn't give an answer or anything he's supposed to share. But in this moment, the very next verse, verse five, God speaks and God answers. Let's take a look. Verse five. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Can we get a different answer, God? In case you missed it, what God basically said is, Habakkuk, you want, you're demanding answers from me. Let me tell you what I'm doing. Now, if you don't know history, this is actually not just Bible history. This is actually recorded history. You probably learned this stuff at some point in middle school or high school on the day when you were taking a nap or finishing your math homework or whatever it was. This is just history. The Babylonians were ruthless, ruthless people. When they would go in to take over a town, they would usually rape the women. They would often take the children off into their own uh, city and raise them from within their own, basically uh, kidnapping them, but permanently. They would kill and murder. A lot of times when they would come in, if a town were to go under siege, uh, under siege means you literally lock up all the gates and the enemy can't get in. And then it just becomes a waiting game. So they would surround the town. Anybody that comes out, and the longer you take, you take a year or two, they just get more and more and more enraged. And the longer it takes before they can get in and conquer you, the more brutal they're gonna be to you. And if you were to have your Bible open, I don't know if you do, but if you have a Bible open, you would read the next few verses in Habakkuk. God describes some of that for you. And basically he's saying, I am raising up the Babylonians to come in and do this. Is that a problem for your theology? If you say, yes, I'm with you. If you say, no, I'd love to hear how you've resolved this. But the way that I make peace with this 
is that God is being faithful to who he is and everything he said that he would do. If you go all the way back in the story, you may not know this story, so let me just tell it quickly. Like, let me cover the entire Bible for you up to this point in 30 seconds, right? So I'm leaving some gaps. But all the way in the garden, as I told you, we're entered into a two-kingdom battle whereby you're either with God or you're with the enemy. And what God did from that moment is he said, I'm going to win back anybody who wants to be in my kingdom, and one day I'm going to send a son from this woman who's gonna crush the enemy's head. It's right there in the fall story in Genesis chapters two and three. That happened slowly over a progression of time where God first went to a man that we call Abraham and said, I'm gonna birth an entire nation out of you. And that began to happen, but God even told Abraham, but it's not yet, it's not yet. It's gonna take time and many years in the future when you have lots and lots and lots of grandchildren, grandchildren, great, great, great grandchildren, they're gonna be slaves and I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna free them. And he did that through Moses. And Moses came in and took the nation of Israel out of captivity in Egypt, and he led them through this long journey through the desert and eventually into the promised land. But when he did that, he gave them the law. And the law was a, a, it was a, it was a, a constitution in some ways. Like, this is how you'll treat each other, and this is how you'll interact with each other, and this is how we'll interact with each other. But constitution isn't the right word, because when you think of constitution, you're going to think of like the preamble and all the things like our rules and our laws and all these declarations and things we keep adding to clarify. No, no, no. God God made one law, had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rules inside it, but it was a covenant. And a covenant has to do with relationship more than contract. But the contractual part of the covenant had to do with this. I'm gonna be your God. I'm bringing my kingdom of heaven down to earth. You're gonna be my people. Eventually, I'll bring the Messiah through you and all nations will eventually be blessed. Here's the deal. If you want in, you're in. If you don't want in, we got a problem. Anybody who wants in, I'm gonna bless you generation after generation after generation. Anybody who doesn't want in, if you turn to the idols of the foreign nations, if you turn away from my moral code, if you don't follow after me, if you don't obey me, if you live as a part of the other kingdom, then I'll have no other choice but to come in and deal with it. And God told them crystal clear exactly what he would do. Habakkuk is prophesying the same time as Jeremiah. You may have heard of Jeremiah. He was a bullfrog. And, um, but don't worry about it. He's a really good friend of mine. And, um, <laughs> and anybody under the age of 30 has no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> Jeremiah was a prophet and prophesying at the same time. What we see in history is where Habakkuk lands, based on what we're learning, what Habakkuk, where Habakkuk lands is the Babylonians already came in once and essentially disciplined Israel on behalf of God. God said, I've already told you who I am. I've already told you there's only two kingdoms. I've already told you if you choose to live as a part of the other kingdom, I'm gonna have no choice because I love you. Like a good parent who says, if I keep letting you do this, you're gonna destroy your life. So what I'm going to do is increase discipline, not punishment, discipline to lead you back to myself. I'm gonna do this in your life. And the prophets show up and they start warning people and warning people and warning people and the people won't listen and they won't listen and they won't listen and they keep getting more, more dark, more and more evil, more and more further away from God. And so now we get to Habakkuk and God is saying, I have no choice. You've refused to return to me. You've refused to let me be your God and you my people. So I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then Habakkuk responds to God. Take a look at verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, 
You've appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Again, Habakkuk is struggling. I know who you are. I talk to you all the time. I've studied your word. I understand your character. You despise evil. How can you look on something that's more evil than even your people doing evil and be okay with that? Part of what you need to get here is, and I think this is powerful, when you are suffering and when you are scared, one of the most powerful things you could do is remind God, oh, by the way, and yourself, of God's faithfulness. There's a Hebrew word, um, chesed. It's spelled literally like C-H-E-S-E-D, chesed. And the chesed of the Lord has to do with the unfailing, faithful love of the Lord. The love that endures forever. And what Habakkuk is doing is going, God, I don't get this. I get what you told us would happen. I get that you've been warning these people. I get that they're hard-hearted and obstinate and refuse to turn away. And I get that now you are disciplining them, but I don't get how you can be good and allow this evil. I don't get it, God. Which brings up a great question. What do you do when God seems to do nothing about your suffering? Well, Paul gives us this advice. And Habakkuk's gonna deal with this in a second, but Paul, the apostle, many thousand years later, whatever, it's probably about 630 years later, give or take, he says this, Philippians chapter four. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and what? Petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? When you don't understand what God is doing, when you don't see a path forward, when you don't know how to solve the problem, pray. And when it says petition, it doesn't mean go make a sign and stand up front. That's probably not gonna help you any. It means keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. And then he doesn't just say pray and keep praying. Keep praying, keep praying, and then start thanking with thanksgiving. The purpose of the thanksgiving is you're turning your heart away from your problem and to all the things that God is doing in the midst of the suffering. If you were to track, again, history, just simple history, the Babylonians come in and they do exactly what God described. It is graphic, it's everything I told you, and he carries off he, the Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he carry off many of the Hebrew children. Some of those children are guys like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You can read about them in the book of Daniel. Read the book of Daniel. It's bad news. I mean, there's very few left. There's a remnant of people of faithfulness left. Many have been killed or destroyed. Some are now living in the foreign land. They're becoming one of the foreign nations. They're, they're really not good situation. But in the midst of all of that, read Daniel sometime. God is at work doing good in the midst of your suffering. You see his hand all over the place. 
I can't really discuss why yet. Um, just give me some grace on this, but it's been a really rough week uh, for my family. And I will eventually tell the story. There's nothing stressful you need to worry about. Just pray for us. But I'll tell you, in the midst of this week, there's just these cool little things that God is doing to show off. These things that are anchors for my faith. I told you in the first week, I'm gonna give you more anchors than answers. It's these little anchors that God just keeps going, look, I'm here, look, I did this, and look, I'm doing this. I'm just sitting back going, God, this hurts, but you were so good. And what we often miss in the midst of suffering is the good that God is doing because we want him to do this thing and do it our way and do it right now. And God's going, I'm, I'm working all things together for your good. Look at Look at what I'm doing. Habakkuk, though, he's, he's making his plea. He's angry at God. He's putting it out there. God, where are you? Why this? And I don't understand your integrity and your character, God. Come on, you gotta do something. And there's no answer at the end of chapter one. Chapter one ends and it's like, we went, Habakkuk asked question, God answers. Habakkuk asked the questions, silence. Sometimes the silence is the hardest part, is it not? But then Habakkuk chapter two comes. Look at verse one. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give this complaint. What Habakkuk is beginning to do is reframe the situation through the lens of faith. God, I'm calling on you. I understand your character. I understand what you're about, but I don't understand what you're doing, and I'm gonna keep petitioning. I'm gonna keep praying until you give me some sort of answer. I'm gonna stand here on the watchtower looking out for you to respond to me. How long did he wait? We don't know. Could have been days, could have been weeks, could have been months, could have been years. And then verse three comes. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on the tablet so that a herald may run with it. Do you know what a herald is? Hark the angels sing. Why are they singing hark the herald? That doesn't make any sense. That's not actually what they're singing. <laughs> they're singing hark the herald angels sing. A herald is uh, Paul Revere. The British are coming. The British are coming. A herald is somebody who runs through the town and proclaims everybody, this is happening, this is happening. There's actually two possible translations of this in the Hebrew, and both are fascinating, even though they give a little bit of a nuance that's different. So one possible translation of the Hebrew is, Habakkuk, I want you to write down exactly what I'm gonna say because it's gonna be such an important and urgent message, what I'm about to tell you. Your answer to your complaint is here. Now you're gonna wanna put it on a herald who's gonna run out and tell everybody, this is the answer from God for your suffering. The other possibility in the Hebrew, and again, it's just a nuance, depending on how you translate it, is I want you to write this down, make it crystal clear, post it somewhere, so that as people are running by, they can read it and get it quick and clear enough. I think that one is a more accurate translation based off the people who study Hebrew that I know. And the reason that's powerful is imagine the Babylonians are now coming. And the people haven't listened, they haven't listened, but Habakkuk, along with Jeremiah and others, had been prophesying and saying, this is what's gonna happen. So they took the message, they boiled it down to really quick, really readable, so that as I'm running away from the enemy trying to steal my life, I would look at that and go, oh, that's the answer. So what is it? Come back next week, I'm just kidding. 
Verse three. For the revelation awaits an appointed time and it speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Before we get to the actual message, here it is. You have got to know Habakkuk, even when it gets to the point where the pain seems unbearable, I am going to do everything that I am about to tell you that I'm going to do. I promise you, you can trust me. But it's gonna take a while. Your answer isn't coming quickly and it's not coming immediately, but I'm no less good. But I am going to do exactly what I told you I would do. And then he goes on and he says, Though it linger, wait for it. It certainly, it will certainly come and it will not delay. So what's the message? Verse four. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by faithfulness. That didn't seem that powerful to you? In other words, what God is saying, okay, let me just summarize it, but in nice little words. God trusts that while in this world the wicked will prosper, the righteous person will live by faith. Let me try it in Matt Nickerson words, not because my words are better than God, just so I could try to interpret for you exactly what Habakkuk is experiencing. What happens through the next verses in the chapter is, is what we call a series of woes, and this is actually a biblical thing. Jesus does this, and Luke, and it's throughout Old Testament prophecy, and it's all over the place. But basically, what God says is, woe to the person who does this, and woe to the person who does that, and woe to the person who does this. They will get theirs. They will get theirs. So Habakkuk and all the people in Israel, in other words, the interpretation is this, you need to only be faithful to me. That's what this has been about all along. You don't need to have all the answers. I am bringing good into the world and I am raising a Babylon to discipline my people, but I will hold them accountable to what they do. When they showed up, they were cruel and evil and unmerciful and I will hold them accountable. You need only to live by faith. That verse, Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, is so critical. Paul uses it in Romans and Galatians, and it was the crux of the Protestant Reformation. If you don't have any idea what that is, go study Martin Luther sometimes. That was the crux. That verse was the crux of it all. Because the point is, we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by our faith. But those who have faith will live faithfully in this world while we have trouble. It's exactly what Jesus says. And he says, in John, ah, oh, no, I forget, John chapter 15, verse 30, I think it is. He says, while in this world you will have trouble, take heart, I have overcome the world. Do not expect because you give me your life, God says, that things will go easy for you. No, even though things are hard, even though things are painful, Jesus endured the suffering and you should expect it too. So hang on. Hang on to your faith. Don't quit. No matter how hard it gets, even when you don't have answers, just hang on a little longer because God will come and make all things good. He will. This is so critical that the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, for in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Who's he quoting? Habakkuk chapter two, verse three. And, but my righteous ones will live by faith. Who's he quoting? 
Habakkuk, chapter two, verse four. And then he adds on another quote of the Old Testament. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Man, I did a series on Hebrews like seven years ago. I think it's time to do it again. I love that book. I had no idea. This is my thing. Like when I don't know what to do with a book, I just go ahead and decide I'm gonna preach on it to force myself to figure it out. That's kind of how I feel about Habakkuk. That's why I've been anxious all week because I don't know what to do with the book. But the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are experiencing such pain they can't make sense of God anymore. And the whole book of Hebrews is saying to them, don't quit. Look at these great men of the faith. Don't quit. Look at Jesus. Did he suffer? Don't quit. Don't look to angels. Jesus is greater. Don't quit. Don't look to the Old Testament sacrifice. There's nothing for you there. Jesus is your sacrifice. Don't quit. And here, he literally says, don't shrink back. Hold on to your faith. No matter how painful it gets, don't quit. You can clap for God. I hope it's not for me. But let's ask this question and try to answer it with the time that we have left. How? I mean, it seems really unfair. The best book I've read, I've read a lot of books philosophically, philosophically, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. The best book I've read pastorally on this subject is the book Hope in the Dark by Craig Groeschel. That's what it looks like. It just came out a few months ago. If you're in a hard season, if you're watching online or listening down the road, go pick up the book by Craig Groeschel, Hope in the Dark. He actually goes to the book of Habakkuk. Highly recommend it. He does a very, very, very good job in a very short amount of space. But he tells this poem that actually I think he said a, a, a young man in his church wrote this. And I think this poem can be the, the way to make the point that we need to make today. Here's the poem. God doesn't love me you can't force me to believe God is good. This is the one truth in life. This world is a product of chance. How can I believe that God will use my life? I know with certainty that God has left me. Never again will I say that Christ is risen from the dead. I know now more than ever in my life that man can save himself. We must realize that is ignorant to think God answers prayers. Christians declare that without God, this world would fall into darkness. This world can and will meet my needs. It is a lie to say that God has always been there for me. I now realize that no matter what I do, the truth is he doesn't love me. How can I presume that God is good? There's an answer in there for you? See, in your darkest moment, that's what your heart will be tempted to say, right? What's crazy about this poem is that if you read it backwards, it has a completely different message. Let's take a look. God is good. How can I presume that he doesn't love me? The truth is, no matter what I do, I now realize that God has always been there for me. It is a lie to say that this world can and will meet my needs. Without God, this world would fall into darkness. Christians declare that God answers prayers. We must realize that it is ignorant to think man can save himself. I know now more than ever in my life that Christ is risen from the dead. Never again will I say that God has left me. I know with certainty that God will use my life. 
How can I believe that this world is a product of chance? This is the one truth in life. God is good. You can't force me to believe God doesn't love me. Man, that gave me goosebumps. I was literally cutting my lawn or doing leaves or something, and I was listening to the book audibly, and I was like, just stopped and had to do it again. I was like, did I just, wow. Thank you, God, for inspiring that person to write that. And the reason I think that's so powerful is what psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors, they call reframing the situation. See, when you're in the middle of your pain, you only see your pain. Pain speaks with a megaphone. But if you could stand from God's vantage point in heaven, in his throne room, looking down at your story and seeing the big arc, not just of your life, not just of this part of your life, but the arc of time, you would have a completely different view of your suffering. You would actually find that your suffering connects you to God himself. It's the power of Jesus that your suffering becomes one with his story and the good that he's bringing into the world. Habakkuk ends chapter two with this realization. I don't have time to read it all to you, but he ends with this realization of God seated on his throne. And so chapter three, all of chapter three is just a song. He literally sits down in the fact that he still has a problem with the suffering of this world, the suffering of his people, the suffering even of his own family, that he's struggling with this, but that God is seated on his throne, and so therefore he trusts God, and he writes a song of praise to God. And what I love is the very last thing in the whole chapter three is he says, give this to the music directors. In other words, teach the people to sing the song. Teach the people to remember God. Teach the people to lift up their voices, to raise a hallelujah in the midst of the suffering but he says this in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17 though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will be joyful in God my Savior the reason that's powerful is because what Habakkuk just did is he summarized the covenant that God made with Israel. That God said, if you will be my people, I will be your God and I will take care of you and I will bless you. But if you pull away from me, you will experience suffering. And what Habakkuk is doing is saying, though we're in the middle of this season, there are no food on the trees, there's nothing on the grapevines, the animal are all gone. We are in the middle of pain. Even in the middle of my pain, still I will rejoice in God, my Savior. Here's a really hard truth for you. And I get, if you're not a person of faith, this whole thing may be lost on you. And I, I just pray, I'm so anxious. God, make this clear to their heart. Please draw the non-believer to yourself right now. Here's the truth you've got to anchor for your soul. Joy is a choice that we make despite the circumstances that we face. So choose joy. It is a choice to look upon all that God is doing in the little things, even though the suffering may exist, and say, God, I trust you, I don't understand you. It's a choice. God, I don't know where the story is going and my pain is intense, but I trust you. I'm gonna choose joy. 
Joy is not the God is good all the time, right, brother? You know, that thing we love to do, like you see somebody in the hallway, they say, how are you? And life stinks, and you're like, oh, man, I'm doing good because God's good. Like, no, 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 no. It's so much deeper, more profound than that. It's Jesus conquered this world. Jesus is seated on the throne in heaven, and Jesus is watching over my life, and nothing can separate me from that love. Nothing here, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor nothing in the future, nothing in the past, nothing in all creation. I am good with God. So my joy comes from the fact that the one who controls history is writing my story, and he's not done yet. That's why Peter says, and I'll close with this, 1 Peter 4, 19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Even when life is hard, the righteous will live by faith. I wanna end a little different today. We've been ending this way for about the last eight weeks. If you're visiting, you know, this is normal to you, but it's new to us. You're gonna see communion tables all over this room. There's a box on the table, and it's for your offering. Please put your offering in. It's what pays for the ministries of the church. But okay, now that I said that, you've got bread and juice on this table. The first thing we have to do is realize that that bread of juice represents the suffering of God. He suffered because he loves. He did that to draw you to himself. But he also did that to draw the person who hurt you to himself. And he also did that to draw you and the person that you hurt to each other. What I wanna do today, I wanna challenge you. I've been asking this whole series about your suffering, your suffering, your suffering, but listen, maybe there's somebody in your life, you brought the suffering into their life. Maybe you failed them as a parent or as a spouse. Maybe you failed them as a friend or a business partner or a life group member. Maybe in some way you hurt them or increased their pain and maybe they don't even know. The point of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, Lord, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. What God is trying to create in his people is a place where it's safe to deal with your sin not because it's easy, it's never easy. Suffering sucks. But part of the way we get through the suffering is through the power of repentance and forgiveness. The healing that can occur only through the grace of God lived out in us. Jesus says, if you're bringing your sacrifice to the altar and it dawns on you while you're in that moment that somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar. Forget God. Go be reconciled to them and then come back and present your sacrifice. The point, Jesus is trying to get to the urgency of the moment. If you know there's brokenness, be reconciled there. Here's what I would encourage you to do. First of all, if you're convicted by what Jesus said, just ignore me and do what he said. But I want to encourage you to take this communion time, to take that bread and that juice and thank God for his suffering. And if you have created suffering in somebody else's life and it is not healed and you've never owned it, 
I want you to ask God for the strength and the courage to do that right now. And the moment this service is over, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Call them. Drive to their house. I know it's gonna be weird and awkward and you had a football game to watch. They'll win or lose whether you see it or not. Don't let the moment of the conviction of the Spirit go right now before being reconciled. Let's pray. God, I don't know what you're gonna do in this moment, but I've been anxious all week about this moment. It's so easy in this moment to hear the convicting word of the Spirit speak into us and to harden our hearts like the Israelites did week after week, month after month, year after year, and do nothing about it. And be heading towards our own destruction by partnering with the enemy and his kingdom instead of with you and your kingdom. God, stir in this place and move in our hearts. May we be fully surrendered to you, God. And whatever pride or arrogance or hurt or shame is in the way through the power of the name of Jesus, strip it away and relieve the baggage. This bread and this juice, if nothing else, confirms for us our freedom in Jesus. God, may we feel free right now. May we feel loved and protected and cared for and safe enough to bring your kingdom of heaven to earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name.